0: John chapter 4 and in verse 5, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood or error. I think that's a pretty poignant verse. So we have the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So what do we get from these two verses? First, from these two concepts, truth and error, we understand that these are universal concepts, right? This applies to all of humanity, okay? Uh, A lot of times, you know, we tend to think of ourselves as Christians as opposed to Buddhists, as opposed to Jews. Um, When we're talking about truth and error, This applies to all humanity, okay? It's not just a creedal, okay? And that's important for us to keep in mind. This isn't just Christian truth. This is truth. To seek truth doesn't mean just fact-finding. When we talk about truth, it's not just a factual accounting. Truth resides on a higher plane. It's It's possible for a person to be factual and not be truthful. It says in 1 John also, we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Well, we just got finished reading, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Those who live according to the viewpoint of the world live in error, but those who have made their break with the world for God's sake listens to him. Okay? Romans 1 teaches us that that which may be known of God was manifest to them because God hath showed it to them. So the idea here is is that truth is revealed. It isn't your academic credentials, your scholasticism, your ability to study the Bible awesomely that's going to get you truth. Truth is God's grace to you, God's condescension to mankind that he gives truth to us. He reveals it to us. Go to John chapter 8. And look in verse 43, Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. How about that? There is the person of this world who, no matter what he tries, because of the way he is situated in life, he is precluded from hearing the truth. He just cannot hear it. More more than that, he can't hear what Jesus says. I I thought that was kind of cool. Um, Verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when we talk about truth and error, we understand that truth comes from God. Truth is in Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Right? But error and falsehood and lying comes from Satan. Okay? So that's important for us to understand. When we talk about the world, we're talking about the viewpoint of the world. And the world means everybody outside of the church. The viewpoint reaches all the way back to Adam. And that viewpoint simply is that man thinks that he is able to subsist apart from God. Right? Now, we within the church, the born again believers, understand that that's a falsehood, that we can't live without God. But the world thinks that they can. And that's the great lie. And that's our greatest temptation, that Satan would lure us into thinking that we can live apart from God. Go to Luke chapter 12, Luke 12. And in verse 54, he said to the crowd, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, It's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, It's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? How about that? So Jesus here is preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem. By his doctrine and his life of holiness, many were convinced that he was the Messiah. However, the Jewish leadership had dismissed him, dismissed his miraculous works as magical and superstitious to the common man. These leaders were considered in their culture to be men of extraordinary piety and the deepest spiritual insights. Their views were considered infallible. They had enormous influence over the people who accepted their teachings implicitly. And yet, these men were spiritual impostors. How about that? They stigmatized Jesus, the very Son of God, as a preacher of sedition. They weren't interested in the truth, but viewed him only as a threat to their ecclesiastical power. That was their only consideration. As for many of the people, their leader's condemnation of Jesus was sufficient and not to be questioned. Their condemnations were good enough for them. If they said Jesus was bad... Jesus was bad. And this is just lazy-mindedness. An unwillingness to think for themselves. They simply accepted their leaders' views as their own without giving it a second thought. When it came to their spiritual lives, these people accepted without question everything their leaders told them, regardless of how absurd or illogical or unscriptural or unloving they were. And yet, in the conduct of their own lives and their own occupations... They would have never surrendered their common sense to another like this. You know, many of us have our own jobs. We go to our jobs every day. We think for ourselves, right? Somebody presents us with a problem. We don't go to the boss and say, well, what do you think about it, boss? We make our own judgments, right? But for some reason, when it comes to doctrine in the church, we're not able to make these kind of judgments, these, these common people would have thought and judged for themselves and would have accepted nothing else. And this is what Jesus was speaking about when he said to them, when you see the cloud rising in the West, immediately you say, it's going to rain. And it does. And when the South wind blows, you say it's going to be hot. And so it is. In other words, we make judgments all the time, right? We use our common sense. We work it out. We think it through. We don't rely on someone else's opinion, you have said you, your own mind, your own judgment, and you would have used it, in other words, right? Jesus was saying, how is it that you exercise your common sense in day-to-day living? But when it comes to spiritual truth, you rely on the esoteric, often the unreasonable thoughts of men. And then he says, hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. How is it that you don't know how to the, interpret the present time. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? And I think that is a word to the church. You know, Roman Catholicism ruled the minds of men for 1500 years, and people w- would not think on their own if it wasn't what the church said. So Jesus was saying to them in the conduct of your everyday affairs, your everyday decision making, you think for yourselves. If something doesn't pass the smell test, you reject it. He was trying to get them to think for themselves. Isn't that something? He basically said to them, you've allowed yourselves to be blinded by your spiritual leadership when God has given you each the ability to draw your own conclusions. Why will you not exert your own faculties and judge for yourselves what is true and right in this matter as you do in things of your everyday life. So I think that's pretty poignant. So I'm going to talk about here three principles of truth. Okay, three principles of truth. The first one, there is a natural difference between truth and falsehood in the doctrinal sense and in right and wrong in the practical sense. Okay. Number two, God has endowed each person with the faculties required to distinguish between truth and falsehood, right and wrong. Every one of us has that ability to make that judgment. Number three, each person has the moral duty and obligation to exert these faculties and judge for themselves in spiritual matters. So let's un- unpack this a little bit. The first principle there is a natural difference between truth and falsehood in the doctrinal sense, right and wrong in the practical sense. As we said earlier, truth and falsehood are universal qualities, universal realities. And truth and error are mutually exclusive. In 1 John, it says, I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it. No lie is of the truth. Okay? So you can't have truth and lies together. As Christians, we don't dabble in half truths or falsehoods for a greater cause. That's something we want to stay away from. As Christians, we're not called to be politicians. In other words, Satan blinds us to the distinctions between truth and error, the right and wrong, through our own personal compromise. That's the consequences of compromise. If you compromise, you lose your ability to distinguish truth from error, okay? Okay, the second principle. God has endowed each person with the faculties required to distinguish between truth and falsehood, right and wrong. Each person has been created in the image of God. So we are all image bearers. And as image bearers, we have certain qualities of God, right? And one of those qualities, a main one, is our ability to judge, to distinguish, to discern. OK, you know, people want to say, well, the Bible says thou shalt not judge. <laughs> That's not what it's talking about. We judge all the time. Corey, you're, you work as a construction engineer. Are you making judgments every moment of every day? We make judgments all the time, all the time. So to say thou shalt not judge, that doesn't make sense. When we say thou shalt not judge, what are we saying? Thou shalt not condemn. That you are not God, and your place is not to condemn somebody. But we ought to be making judgments all the time. And that's in the physical. It is also, more importantly, true in the spiritual. We are making judgments all the time. Romans 1 says, Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do them but have pleasure. So there is a choice being made, a judgment being made. In other words, we know the truth, but we choose to do otherwise, okay? And this is is the basis of the first sin, right? Adam knew God's commandment, but chose not to follow it, all right? That was a judgment. Now, along with this natural faculty of judgment that each one of us has, Christians also have the Holy Spirit. And uh, you don't have to turn there, but in John sixteen thirteen it says, But when it, the spirit of truth, comes, it will guide you into all truth. It will not speak of its own. It will speak only of what it hears, and it will tell you what is yet to come. So we have our own ability to think, our faculties of reason and judgment. But then we also have the added blessing of the Holy Spirit. That guides us in our thinking to the whole, tr- or to the the truth, right? The idea of truth. The third principle is each person has a moral duty and obligation to exert these faculties and judge for themselves in spiritual matters, and this we should do. Um, I was thinking of the verse in Isaiah 40, 21, where it says, "Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been?" Told you from the beginning. Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? God makes himself known, right? And that's important. Jesus held people accountable for their weakness of faith and lack of understanding. Right? He called them on it. Remember, if truth is universal. We have the faculties of understanding truth, discerning truth from error. And Jesus didn't let people slide on that. He called them out. The problems that we have with our inquiry into the truth. Okay, so I'm going to talk about a, f- a few other things. We failed to make truth our own. Go to Acts chapter 17. This is a verse that we're, we're uh, familiar with. Acts chapter 17 and look in verse 11. It says, Now the Bereans were of m- more noble character than the Thessalonians. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I think there's a few big keys in there for pursuing the truth. One of them is an eagerness of mind, right? An eagerness of mind that I don't just accept things passively, that I'm aggressive in my mind in pursuing truth, that I go after it. The second point here is that I didn't accept truth based on some person's or some organization's authority, right? I think for myself. The Bereans were of more noble character because they thought for themselves. They pursued it with eagerness of mind, and they checked it out. They checked it out. They said, are these things so? I'm always amazed at how, I mean, adult Christians, and you ask them why they believe what they believe, and they can't give you an answer. Another problem that we have with our inquiry into the truth is that we fail to recognize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that the word makes known Jesus. Go to John chapter 5. John 5, look in verse 39. It says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify of me. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he's saying, look, you spent a lot of time in the Scriptures." you think that they validate you, you're missing the point. These same scriptures that you spend your days studying are the scriptures that make known me. Isn't that something? You fail to know Jesus. We fail to study the word. Go to 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15. It says, Do your best to present yourselves to God. Present yourselves to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. So who are we accountable to in this verse? God, right, for how we pursue the truth. I think that's pretty sobering. In other words, when we're standing before Jesus on the last day, we've got to give an account. If this verse says one thing, but my church says something else, who am I responsible to, my church or God? I think that's very sobering. I'm going to be held accountable for that choice, that judgment. Uh, Next principle, we fail to understand that God demands us to walk in spiritual freedom and to pursue the truth where it takes us. You don't have to turn there, but Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again with the yoke of slavery. You know, I don't have a problem with somebody speaking into my life. In fact, I, I pursue it. I want people to speak into my life, but I will not be told what to do by by man. Right. As far as the truth goes, I will not be splained what the truth is. I have the freedom to choose. Now, that person may very well be right. But, you know, it's my choice ultimately. And we have to reserve that right to disagree no matter what organization we're with. And the way that you tell if an organization is worthy of your attendance is whether they will allow you that freedom. Actually, if you think about it, they don't allow or disallow. It is right whether they recognize that freedom. Right. If I am accountable to God for my choices, then and I'm also told to stand fast in the liberty, then I have the right and the responsibility of First of all, keeping my freedom. And second of all, pursuing the truth where it leads me. That is hugely important. The next principle, we fail to understand the damaging power of convention. Now, when I say convention, does everybody know what that means? This is how it's done kind of idea, right? This is a convention. It's an established way of doing things. We use the word tradition, right? Convention and tradition can be used um interchangeably right the damaging power of convention this is the way it's done now it gets into groupthink especially because you have this social reinforcement of this is the way it's done right but it it's it shuts down that faculty of your mind that Jesus commanded them to keep active that the Bereans kept eager do you see that Paul said, we fail to understand those things of first importance. We fail to check our premises. We believe something, right? That's part of our worldview, but we don't check why we believe this. And uh, go to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, 2, it says, Why do your disciples break with the traditions of elders? of the elders? They do not wash their hands before they eat, Jesus replied. And why do you break the commands of God? for the sake of your convention, your traditions. Isn't that something? Now, is it a good idea to wash your hands before you eat? Sure. And in fact, that was codified into the law. You know, that there was this, not only this practical idea of washing your hands before you eat, the ritual showing a deeper truth about staying spiritually clean, right? Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Anyway, the point is, it's a good idea to do this. But what they were doing was elevating the physical over the spiritual. And that's the next principle. We substitute our own values for God's values. In verse 4, it says, for God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death, but you say. Isn't that interesting? So God says, God commands, but you say. In verse 6, it says, thus you nullify nullify." The word of God for the sake of your convention, your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. This people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And that's what can happen to a spiritual church if this is allowed to stay. If things are done by convention. If people don't ever ask, why? Why are we doing it this way, right? You do that in your job, but when it comes to spiritual things, why aren't you doing it? That's what Jesus asked. Why aren't you doing this? You discern the faces of the sky. You see that, you know, on such and such, you know, a day with such and such weather, you know, this is going to happen, but you don't exercise your brain in spiritual things. You don't ask why. You just accept it. And there are too many Christians who just accept it. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is a big verse. It is our responsibility, our commanded responsibility, to check things out, to think. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 21. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Test everything. So I was thinking about today the first principles of Protestantism, right? The first principles of Protestantism. And these were asserted when breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church and for which the fathers of the Reformation were willing to lay down their lives for. Okay, so these were the first principles of Protestantism. There are two of them. The first one, the duty of free inquiry. Inquiry. Does everybody know what that means? Inquire, inquiry. Right. In other words, an unfettered investigation into the word of God, the duty of free inquiry. I have the right to look at it myself. I have my own Bible. I have the Holy Spirit that God gave me. I have my own personal relationship with God. I have the right to say why. Right. The second one is the exercise of private judgment. Okay, so these are two principles of Protestantism, the duty of free inquiry and the exercise of private judgment that you have the right to your own mind. You see how important that is. It's vital. I am allowed to make up my own mind. I've talked about this before, but I was in a um, I was in a class in college and uh, it was a civics class. And I'm thumbing through the book, and, and I come across this picture, and it was a, a woman. This was back in the, you know, this girl, this picture was taken of a woman back in the 60s. And she had a placard up, and it says, I dissent. And I was like, I don't know what the word dissent means. And I looked it up, and it means, I disagree. I disagree. That we have the ability to say, I disagree. That shouldn't make you a radical. It should make you a regular person with your own mind. But if you look at our society now, more and more people are getting on the bandwagon. People are afraid to dissent. And that's not just in the world, that's creeping into the church. In our cancel culture, people are afraid to ask why. Because they might get kicked off of Facebook. That there are times where our questions will make us unpopular. Okay, okay. And that brings me to... Martin Luther. Martin Luther used to say, sola scriptura, only the scriptures. I wanted to read this passage from a woman named Mary Dana. After she remarried, her name was Mary Dana Schindler. She was born in 1810 in Beaufort, South Carolina, and she died in uh, February 8, 1883. She was a daughter of a congregational church a minister in Beaufort. Congregational church is a Presbyterian church, okay? Um, In 1835, she married Charles Dana, and she was married to him until 1839, when her husband and her young boy both died together within two days of each other. So then she went back home to her, her family, her parents' house, and then she lost two siblings immediately. So she lost four people in her life, one right after another. And it was devastating to her. So she started asking questions. And she started taking a a doctrinal position that was very unpopular in her particular church. And she wrote a paper, actually it was more of a book, called uh, Letters Addressed to Relatives and Friends. She wrote this in 1846, and it's to address some of these doctrinal differences that she was having. I uh, wanted to read some of these sections from her book to you, because I think they really illustrate this independence of truth that we have to have, each one of us. So she's making an argument in this first passage, I'm going to read you, to a person about the freedom of inquiry. And she's writing to this person who is criticizing her for thinking her own thoughts. She says, why do we prize our physical liberty, but that we may exert our physical powers? But if we were allowed to take only a certain number of steps and we're forced to take those steps only in a certain direction, would that be liberty? Would that be worthy of the name? True. The legs may be unchained. We are at liberty to use them. But how? Exactly according to the dictates of another. Would that be liberty? Would that be freedom? Yet this is all the mental freedom you are willing to concede to me. Use your reason, you virtually tell me. Take the Bible, read it for yourself. But if you come to any other conclusion than that which we think to be right, you must, of course, be wrong. You did not search in the right way. You are without the influence of the Holy Spirit. You can only be right when you think just as we do. That's something. And that's that groupthink. That we were talking about people love the sense of group group seems to validate people well it shouldn't validate us ever our validation comes from god alone and scripture so the principles of private judgment here's uh, some interesting thoughts for you the principles of private judgment a to suspend judgment entirely concerning the truth or falsehood of any doctrine and the fitness or unfitness of all actions until the person understands some reason to determine his judgment one way or another. That's something to suspend. Now, we live in an age where you're called upon to make snap judgments all the time, but it is completely admissible and preferable to say sometimes, I don't know, right? Somebody asks your opinion, I don't know, I haven't thought about it. Until finding that knowledge of truth, he should put himself in a state of impartiality regarding the point being considered, right? You just don't have a dog in that fight. And allows his judgment to be determined only by God's guidance, reason, and argument regarding the truth of Scripture, right? We can't allow ourselves to be pushed into a position. Only Satan pushes. God leads, okay? There's a big difference, right? Right? You herd cattle, you lead sheep. And that's important to keep in mind. You herd cattle, you lead sheep. I'm not a cow, I'm a sheep. See that? By impartiality, it's intended that a person doesn't fancy something to be true or even wish it so until the subject can be connected with a fundamental truth or principle. I think a lot of the reasons that people are deceived so easily is because they want to be deceived. They want something to be true. And, you know, we're all afflicted with that to some degree or another. But you've got to have the ability to stand back and say, look, I may want it to be one way, but if it's not, I'm the truths. I will follow the truth. This person uh, who pursues this doesn't trot out old prejudices or preconceptions, but is ready to receive the impressions of reason applied to Scripture only. Okay, and that's important. We have to... Be aware of our own inclinations, our own prejudices, our own biases, and be willing to, you know, happy to forfeit them when Scripture teaches us otherwise. I think it's something that an old minister used to say. A man of truth at times is more conservative than the conservatives, and at other times is more liberal than the liberals, right? Because it's the truth that we're after, not trying to substantiate our preconceived point of view. OK, the enemies of this independent standing of the truth are laziness and unhealthy concern for the opinions of others, self-doubt and cowardliness. We need to be willing to stand alone. I mean, I would prefer to stand with other people, but I'm willing to stand alone when it comes to the truth. And I think it's important for us to work that scenario through our minds and hearts i have gone through a situation where i lost all my friends in one fell swoop because of a decision i had to make about the truth leaving a former ministry i lost all my friends and it was painful and it was character building remember what we read a couple weeks ago that um that persecution worketh patience patience experience right experience hope godly character You you see what i'm saying and that was a test That was a test that God gave to me. Are you going to stand? And I think it's important that we see it for that. The question we must habitually ask ourselves is, why do we believe what we believe? The second principle of private judgment is to exert our own reason in weighing arguments and evidences that offer themselves to us. Okay, that we have to weigh and consider. Too often we look for a black and white answer, right? This is good. This is bad. And so often in life, what we have is a collision of principles and you have to work through them and you have to consider and weigh. Oftentimes it's not black and white when you're at work and you're you catch your boss embezzling money. That's pretty black and white. But there are other times where not so black and white. You see, faith is not blind. It's very active. When pursuing the truth, one must weigh and consider, compare and contrast. Weigh and consider, compare and contrast. Satan has crippled the church with the notion that faith and reason are opposites. They are not. They are not. Now listen, this is what uh, Mary Dana said. She said, you say that you should be lost if your reason were to be your guide. Your expression is rather indefinite, and it depends upon what your exact meaning is, whether or not I can agree with you. If you mean that it would be dangerous, I fatal, to depend upon reason alone, I fully and heartily acquiesce to your declaration. But if you mean that reason is to be laid entirely aside, I cannot at all agree with you. Without reason, of what possible use would revelation be? Place the Bible in the hands of an idiot who never enjoyed the gift of reason, or of a madman whose reason has been dethroned, and what a mockery you make of their sad misfortunes. You cannot then mean that we are to make no use of reason, but if you believe that, with the revelation from our Heavenly Father in our hands, we are to use our utmost efforts to ascertain what it is that God has spoken. Why then, as I said before in this matter, we entirely agree? I am as much opposed as you can be to exalting reason above revelation, to deciding what ought and what ought not to be in the Bible. But we must certainly use our highest faculties and our best efforts to ascertain what is there. And if the scripture anywhere seems to teach doctrines contrary to those which they have elsewhere plainly taught, we are bound, if possible, to give those seemingly discordant passages a different construction. And if, as may be the case, we cannot find out what they mean, we must imitate the great John Locke and humbly say so. I don't know. (laughs) Right? It's okay. And we must patiently wait until we enter upon a more perfect state of existence when all will be explained to us, when all that is dark will be brought to light, when faith will be exchanged for sight. Isn't that something? Isn't that beautiful? So, in other words, um, when we read the Bible, we should read it with an active, eager mind. We should be weighing and considering and reasoning. When people talk about this battle between faith and reason, it, it's, it's a mindless quote. It's a mindless idea. We should have reason, but reason according to the scriptures, okay? Mm-hmm. Nothing should be accepted on the basis of convention. The third principle, to honestly embrace truth wherever it is found without trying to evade it, shift it off or stifle the convictions of one's own mind. That when truth is revealed to you, embrace it. Embrace it, even if it is unpopular. To follow truth wherever it leads, whatever notions it may contradict, and whatever criticisms it may expose us to. To yield ourselves entirely to the truth. It's vain to examine something and not be willing to abandon former beliefs that are found to be invalid. All right? In other words, when we go to the Bible, and I use this expression all the time, we go with empty hands, right? We're not bringing our ideology in with us. I'm willing to abandon what I think and what I believe when Scripture tells me so. Now, I know that a lot of Protestants claim that, but it doesn't take too much effort to show that that's just not the case. The enemies to this are uh, to be overly aware of great names and institutions, Right, Professor so and so said this, or Dr. so and so said this, or Reverend so and so said this. Remember that? We learned that in the class a long time ago that sincerity was no guarantee for truth. Next principle to give our assent to a truth only in proportion to the degree the evidence appears to support it. Okay, all truth is not equally clear to each of us. That means that I can hold a view of something and say, Yeah. It's a, it's a tenuous point of view. Uh, this is how I think it, this is what I think it means, but I'm open to persuasion. You know what I mean? Uh, some truths are impressions, while others are incontrovertible. Each of us should know the difference for ourselves. It means that there's no backing up on it. It's, it's proven, you know, it's in, you can't contest it. Incontrovertible. Each of us should know the difference for ourselves, the clarities. Of truth will change throughout our walk. Some that were impressions and intuitions in my early years are incontrovertible now. And we all know that, isn't it? Don't we? The things that were kind of on the fringe when we were younger in the Word, now it's like, <laughs> that is a truth. <laughs> that is a truth. It often takes time for the Spirit of God to work a truth into your soul, so to your hardness and preconceptions. So, and that's true, right? I mean, we have a hard heart. It it takes some melting to get in there, right? And to, to break through and to give you that, that light of understanding. So in ending today, I wanted to read one more passage from Mary Dana. She said, But our Master said, Search the Scriptures, for they are they which testify of me. And those private Christians were commended who searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things which they were taught were true. How different is, is this from your real meaning when you direct us to the Bible? Considering that our religious teachers in these days are not inspired men as the first teachers of Christianity were, the ground you take is very strange. You also say search the scriptures, but you say at the same time, beware of your conclusions. Let me direct your inquiries and control your final judgments. You give me leave to search the scriptures provided I find there just what you do. And if I cannot find those things, if I am not so fortunate as to understand with your understanding, you insist upon it that I have not searched a right. Is this freedom of inquiry? Is this the right of private judgment? For which you, as a Protestant, contend? Is this the liberty you are so kind to grant me? If it is, I don't want it. If I must arrive at your conclusions, why should I take the trouble to search for myself? Why not save myself such an expenditure of time, such an amount of anxiety and fatigue, and such a waste of strength? You have searched the Bible. You are very sure you are right. If I should come to a different conclusion, it would be certain I was wrong. Therefore, my wisest plan would be just to give up the whole business into your hands. But before I could be persuaded to adopt your conclusions, you must guarantee that I shall not be called into account for my opinion in the last day. This, I know, you cannot do. And therefore, I will make the Bible understood as well as it can be by the reason that God has given me my only standard of faith. Isn't that beautiful? I, ha- I will have no other. Blessed be God for giving us an infallible standard. Praise be to his holy name forever. And shall I cast aside this revelation from God himself and submit to be fettered by articles and creeds the production of imperfect creatures like myself? No, my dear sir. God helping me, I never will. The Bible, the Bible for me. I will bind it to my heart. It shall be my guide through life and my comfort in death. Isn't that beautiful? So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, for that word. I thank you, Father, that each one of us can truly be in our own way independent for the truth. And thank you, Father, for giving us such a great example of the man who stood independent from all others when it came to the truth. Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.